Welcome to JFI's Pop Parenting, where therapist Avram Natigel and me, Ellie Bass, use 80s and 90s teen flicks to talk about parenting, families, marriage, and love. Hi, this is Ellie. This week on Pop Parenting, The Karate Kid is seeing another heyday with the release of Cobra Kai on Netflix. This week, Avram and Ellie discuss this 80s classic and touch on themes of meditation, wise elders, being present and giving space, and where should the locus of power be in a family. Also, check out Avram's new email newsletter for extra ideas and insights on each of the films we've looked at. Okay, Karate Kid, here we go. We're live. Oh, I gotta get my notes. My God, I can't. I can't wing this. I can't wing this. Hold on. Where's my notes? There we go. No, those are my clinical. Hold on. These are my clinical notes. That's not good. I don't want to share my clinical notes. Hold on. I gotta get the good notes. Share your your geniogram on the screen today. No. Uh, I will not be sharing. Uh, If people want to see the if people want to see the family diagram, they should sign up for my newsletter. That's right. Okay. How do they sign up for your newsletter? Tell they go to, uh, if you want to sign up for my newsletter, um, which called... by the way is really awesome. So you got to check it out. I just got the first one the other day. Thank you. Um, you go to, uh, natigal.com, my last name, N-A-D-I-G-E-L.com. Sign up at the bottom. The, uh, the project of the newsletter is called Stuck Unstuck. Uh, and, um, you will every twice a month I send out, um, uh, an email where I create a family diagram, uh, mostly on the podcast that we've recorded Ellie, but I'm going to do some films. I think this is where I will take a risk and do some Woody Allen films as well. Awesome. Um, and uh, that way I, I will incur the, uh, whatever the wrath yeah. that I will, uh, um, I will incur from doing that. And, um, and I, uh, take a character. I, uh, use the diagram and just give an example of how they are stuck. And in the unstuck section, I provide some questions to think about ways to apply this in your own life um, in terms of how the things to think about um, how to get some leverage in our relationships um, and uh, where we're stuck. So there we go. Um, Okay. I'm going to do an extra plug while I remember, because I think it's really important to let people know. So for those of you who can't see us on the zoom, you'll see behind Avram on the top shelf there, he has his books. So if anyone is ever thinking about being in a relationship or if you're in a relationship, please check out Learning to Commit and his other book, It Takes More Than Love. So all everything you can get on Amazon, right? Yeah, it's all on Amazon and Caversham. Um, like literally one of them, like a foundational relationship book. I cannot recommend it enough. So look for Learning to Commit. And um, his newest book is Where Would You Like to Start? And so if you are involved in any way in coaching, in therapy, in any type of practice where you're helping people, or if you're literally just interested in the therapeutic process um, and the relationship between one therapist and another, it's a really interesting, um, fascinating book. So I totally recommend it. So go to either Avram's website to see all of those books, or you can get them from Amazon. Um, but I definitely recommend taking a look at those. Yeah. I just got a, such a lovely email from a, um, I don't know what you call, he's, he's, he's kind of like a guidance counselor in high school in the United States. Mm-hmm. And I think he's in Colorado, but, um, he does his, his focus is, uh, university. So, you know, like the, you know, I guess it's the grade 11 or 12 students who come and speak to him. Right. Um, and he has a, a family systems background, but he's not a therapist. He's uh, he does this coaching for high school students who are going to university and he's been tweeting little um, uh, things. I've been following him for a long time. Great guy, uh, John Moyer. And um, he's been tweeting. And, and one of the tweets I said, I made a comment like um, excellent observation, something. And he said, uh, he goes, I took that from your book. Where would you like to start? Because I'm reading it. It's fantastic. I had no idea. I'm like, what page is that from? And he found me the section. And so there you go. Um, that is so it, it was great. It was, it was so great. So anyways, thanks, Ellie. Um, okay, so welcome back, everybody, from wherever you're listening from, whether you're from uh, Israel or down under or in the States or wherever you are. Uh, welcome, welcome. We are, we, we did a poll on Facebook. 
we asked people what they wanted to talk about and this is the one that came out on top it's the karate kid now whether this is because there's coca Fine and netflix which i know several of my friends are obsessed with um or whether this is just still like a beloved film um you know which has a stunning soundtrack, by the way. Sorry, I'm saying that tongue in cheek because it's just such a funny soundtrack. It, it sounds like um, uh, it, it's just like a, uh, an electro, electric piano that someone plays most of the time in the background. <laughs> I was noticing not, but, that as I was watching it. I was like, hmm, this is, this is not the most high-tech soundtrack. <laughs> yeah, but you know what? Cobra Kai, though, the, the sequel that now is on Netflix, the popular show on Netflix, right. Uh, to set the tone, they're using all these old '80s uh, songs. Yeah. Um, in Cobra yeah. Kai, so that yeah, soundtrack they actually the, they do in the movie also. Like I was so happy to hear Banana uh, Banana Rama. Oh, playing Cool Summer. I have um, that. I, I have that. That was one of my favorite songs so from the '80s. Okay, Ellie, song. I had to do some research on this song when, when I found this. So, <laughs> do you know that the Banana Rama girls, when they uh, came together, they were sort of like punk rockers yeah. in England. They were not like poppy. Right. Uh, you know who they lived with for a while in like a loft? Who? Johnny, um, the Sex Pistols guy, Lydon Lydon. What's his name? Uh, what? Johnny Rotten. Johnny, they lived with Johnny Rotten. Well, all the Sex Pistols That's guys, like when, when they were shooting smack and everything. And yeah, they were living there. The other interesting thing I found out wow. was that, um, uh, and again, I, I am not promoting drug use. I am just, I am, I'm merely sharing facts <laughs> that I found online. It turns out that um, they shot Cruel Summer, the video in New York. They, they were, you know, they're from England. They, yeah. um, and so they used the opportunity for the advance I got from their record company to come to New York. Okay. They shot the video and they shot the video at the docks in New York. Okay. They claim that at a lunch break, <laughs> it's hilarious, that the workers on the docks came and gave them some cocaine. They snorted it and they said, if you watch the video, now Ellie, you got to watch the video. The beginning of the video is before they met the guys in the docks and they're kind of like low and low energy. And at the end, you know, in the end, they're all dancing and they're all yeah. hyperactive. <laughs> they said that was after they snorted the cocaine. Anyways, I thought that was oh, a little the 80s. <laughs> interesting piece of trivia. The last thing I heard about Cruel okay. Summer is that the song the song was doing well for them in England, but it was the Karate Kid that um, propelled the song and helped chart the song. Yeah, um, and uh, they built an album actually around the song, but it's such a good It's such song. a good song. And for some reason, it was perfectly placed in the movie. It just worked. It, it, it makes you notice the song. It changes the vibe of the scene. Like, and it feels accidental, but it's just like perfection. It was so good. So, and yeah, it's, it's also good. timeless. Like if you hear Cruel Summer today yeah. in 2021, I don't find I'm listening to it like, um, I'm trying to think of another song like, Sorry, oh my, Amber that's both of us. Okay. Oh, okay. Stay at home. <laughs> Ellie, that's the, <laughs> it's on our podcast. We shall continue to do that. We'll yes. Um, know that our phones just went buzzing at the same time. Yeah. For those who are just tuning in, we have a stay at home order in Ontario due to COVID. Um, and uh, that was that, that sound. Um, uh, yeah, you know, there's certain songs from the 80s. I'm trying to think, like maybe, you know, Wham, where it sounds 80s and some Duran Duran songs. But right. when I hear Cruel Summer, I don't find that it's misplaced when I hear it now. Do you? No, not at all. In fact, you know, um, we were talking about songs the other day. You and I were like texting about music. And so I stumbled on like all of those 1981 alternative pop um, playlists on Apple. And I have to say how much of that music is still so good. Mm. Like, like Haircut 100, like who knew that would still be cool? Um, you know, or The Waitresses. There's like all these crazy, but you know why? Because they're like, they really are more like the music today where it's this fusion of like pop and rap and funk and like people were just playing around. And um and it was so interesting. So yeah, I'm 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 now obsessed with listening to all of these all the stuff I used to listen to on CFMY um 102.1 in Toronto when I was like in the beginnings of high school. So it's been a lot of fun. But yeah, Great. Blast. all right. Um can we divide up beyond one foot for this one? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> okay, I'll do the beginning and you can do the the latter part. Um, okay, so karate kid. So Karate Kid is um, 
a bit of a fish out of water story where, you know, he moves with his mom from, you know, New York City. He's a New York kid who's always grown up and he has his best friends and his whole life and they get in a car that tends to break down a lot. It's just him and his mother and they move to Los Angeles because she's gotten a new job. So they drive across the country and they get there and he's cl he's clearly not particularly happy about it. Um, but they move to this, you know, little apartment. She keeps telling him, oh, we're going to have a pool. And then he gets there and the pool is like empty and gross. Um, but basically they're moving to this totally new city, new culture, new place. He's going to a new high school. Um, I think he's also a senior, if I remember correctly. Like they're, they're all seniors, the characters in this film. Um, and in the complex that he moves into, the handyman is a man named Mr. Miyagi who um, unbeknownst to the main character at the beginning uh, is a karate expert. And so, and the, um, and he, Ralph Macchio's character took karate a little bit at the Y in New York City. So he knows a little bit of it, but then he basically finds himself the target of the popular boys, the football guys in school um, who are all involved in this very militant karate school. Um, who are taught basically that karate is to be used for hurting and killing and controlling people. And he becomes the new target. And so he gets beaten up by them a few times. And finally his mom asks him what's going on and Mr. Miyagi overhears and he gets beaten up really bad. Um, Mr. Miyagi comes, oh, uh, he plays a prank on them. Like the sort of, you know, epic uh, changeover of how things changes. There's a girl that he likes in the school who used to date one of the guys who's bullying him. He goes to the dance, by the way, dressed as a shower. Um, <laughs> you have to see the movie to understand that. And uh, pulls a prank on, uh, on the guys who have been bullying him, which I would never advise anyone to do if you're dressed as a shower. I'm not quite sure what he was thinking there. Uh, not the easiest costume to get away in, <laughs> but he basically pranks them. They chase after him. They start beating him really badly, like really, you know, in a criminal sense. And then Mr. Miyagi like appears out of nowhere and kicks all their butts with karate and saves him. And so, event so eventually Mr. Miyagi agrees to teach Ralph Macchio real karate. And they make a deal with the boys that are at the other um, karate school that they are not allowed to touch him until they meet at a tournament where they'll decide like who does karate better. Um, okay, do you wanna take it from there? <laughs> By the way, how do you, do you plan this before a podcast? Because I couldn't remember all the little details of, uh, are you just riffing that off the top of your head? Yeah. <laughs> wow, that's pretty impressive, okay. Uh, oh, great, now you wanna hand it over uh, to I'm me. I'm really just talking about the things that I enjoyed and remembered, so <laughs> that's how it goes. Okay, take it from there, sir. So this is, uh, then so he starts well, I think training, right? The wax on wax off. That's when the whole, this is the whole montage of training. Right. And, um, and a relationship, um, uh, gets formed. And I think, um, uh, you know, I'm not the expert on the standing on one foot here. So what I will say, and what I wanted to focus on for, uh, today's episode, um, is how, it, you know, it's the old Mick Jagger idea, um, that line, uh, you can't always, uh, what is it? Uh, you can't always get what you want, but if you try sometimes you get what you need. Um, I'm not sure if Miyagi knew he was looking, what he, what he was looking for. You know, sometimes early in life, oh, interesting. you know, people will come, you know, to work with me and they think they're coming in to do X, but what they discover in the process, they find out Y um, or A or Z or whatever. Um, and I, as a therapist, I don't know. What I do know is that once you embark on a journey of self-discovery, what you're looking for sometimes will surprise you. I think it's somewhat similar. Um, when I went to Banff in my early 20s, I went to party and you know do what all 20-year-olds do when they go to Banff. And that's where I sort of discovered 
poetry and my love of mountains. And I did not have any sense at all, which is one of the reasons why if you're not a traveler and I, I get, I get twitchy with travel, but I know it's so good for me because it introduces me to things that I didn't even know I was searching for. I had no idea mountains would impact me that way right. led to my move to Vancouver. And so um, I'm not sure Miyagi at the time knew he was searching or rather I'm not sure he knew that he had all this unresolved grief of his um, wife who died and whose child who died uh, all in childbirth. Um, I don't know if he was looking for that per se, but he 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 discovers it in the process of developing this relationship with um, with uh, Daniel. And Daniel doesn't have a father. I mean, there's no father. There's no, there's no mention of a father anywhere in the film. I don't think there's. A, Online, I don't know where I, Ellie, I found this online. I don't know where this guy got this from. Someone claims that Daniel's father died of a terminal illness when he was eight. Was that mentioned in the film? Not that I remember. If it I don't remember that either. We missed that, but that's interesting. Um, but like so many of these films from the 80s, there's a missing parent. Have you noticed that? How many films, Ellie, have we focused on where there's a missing parent, a mother or a father who, I, I sorry? I can't actually think of one. Oh, I guess parenthood. 16 candles. The parents were together. Right. Yeah. But most of the other ones, it's all about it's single parenthood, but that was the big new, that was the new cultural thing that people were allowed to talk about in the eighties. Right. They were, people were getting divorced. Like the idea of there was a conversation around being a single parent. This was, that was the first time you ever heard that term. Um, single parent. So I think it was really, that was the sort of zeitgeist of what people were trying to figure out then. Which I think was all started with, I think, uh, Kramer versus Kramer in 1970, I think it was 1978, um, really broke open the doors for uh, Hollywood to explore those issues. Um, So in this process of of this relationship, Daniel also discovers that um, he finds himself sort of a father figure in Miyagi, um, and really all sort of the rituals that, you know, teenage boys and teenage girls these days, but back then, I guess it was more of a gender split type thing. You know, this idea of, you know, the dad, you know, pick your car, son, and, and, you know, he gets to pick Miyagi, gives him a car and, um, and all those sorts of things. And so this relationship gets, this bond gets formed and they both become stronger because of it. Um, Miyagi has a, a, a purpose to guide someone, perhaps the son he never had. And so here, here he has this young, um, this teenage boy who he can guide and, and, um, and coach right. uh, and take real pleasure. The film ends when, uh, when Daniel wins the match. For those of you who haven't seen The Karate Kid, I apologize. You should have seen The Karate Kid. If you haven't seen The Karate Kid, it's your fault. Um, but uh, Daniel, uh, Miyagi has this big smile on his face when Daniel wins the match and it's a smile of pride. It's, yeah. it's the way a parent might, you know, be looking at their kid who, who has overcome some great obstacle. Yeah. Uh, and Daniel, not only is Daniel stronger physically, obviously he learns how to punch, he learns how to kick, he learns how to defend himself. He's stronger emotionally. He, he's more solid within himself. Um, and a lot of Daniel's insecurities that you find out in the film, you know, he's insecure about how, you know, his socioeconomic status, again, a very common theme in these eighties films, the, uh, you know, um, uh, I forget her name. It's, um, oh, what's her name? The actress, Shu, uh, Elizabeth Shu. What's her, is it Allie? Allie it's Allie. Allie. Allie with an eye. Allie with an eye, right. Allie with an eye. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, and so Ali lives in a very big house on the other side of the tracks. Uh, Daniel is quite um, uh, uh, ashamed of his uh, his house and, and where he um, where he comes from. Um, but as he becomes stronger uh, physically and emotionally, he also becomes stronger uh, as more solid of the self. And I, one of the interesting things that um, people in the CBT world know and the mindfulness world know that Miyagi teaches Daniel is before you can throw a punch and before you can kick and before you can defend yourself in a fight, you have to know how to center yourself. You have to know how to ground yourself and how to center yourself and how to, how to deal with the internal strength before you can learn to deal with the external strength. Um, and I think- It's so beautiful in that scene where he barely knows him, but he shows him how to do the bonsai tree. 
And it's quite stunning. Like, I mean, it's so ahead of its time in terms of pop psychology and mindfulness where he just says like, what, you know, cause he says to him at one point, how do I know if I'm doing it right? And Mr. Miyagi says something so beautiful. He says, if it comes from within you, it's always right. Okay, I have that down verbatim. How did you remember that line? I had to- It was so lovely. I was like, wow, that was quite interesting that that was in there. Um, Yeah, it was beautiful. It's a beautiful line. It's um, it's it's a it's a really good line. I I have to say, um, uh, you remember Howard Jones, the singer from the eighties, the synth pop guy Howard Jones. He he has that. He has a wonderful song called "What Is Love." Do you remember that song? What is love? I had a boyfriend in grade nine who I was a boyfriend. He was my boyfriend because he looked like Howard Jones. Just to say. Oh, did he, did he have the big mane? <laughs> Yeah, it's great. And uh, one of the lines is um, maybe, uh, what is it? Maybe love is letting people be who they need to be. Something like that. You know, the whole song is riffing on what is love and what is love, what is love. And Howard Jones has this line, maybe maybe love is just letting people be who they need to be. And you and I have talked about this term, This it's a complex term um, in, in my world, the systems world called differentiation of self. And standing on one foot, that's actually not a bad definition um, for parents with their kids, this idea of, can we be present in our kids' lives and provide them with, you know, whatever roof over their head, whatever that looks like, and that there's food on the table, whatever that looks like. But that general idea from Miyagi, which is that um, we give our kids the space to know that what comes from within you, deeply thought, Deep, not off the cuff, but deeply struggled with what comes from within you is good. Right. That's Once good. You center yourself. Once right. you center yourself. Like he centers himself first. He says, close your eyes, just see only the tree. Like he puts him in the right state. And then from there, you can trust like whatever comes. It's quite beautiful. Now, I mean, I have to say, um, I think that uh, there's a, a, a bunch of parenting lessons in this film um, from Miyagi. But, uh, you know, you you can say to someone, center yourself, center yourself. But if the teacher, parent, coach, karate teacher isn't centered themselves, it won't have any impact at all. Um, If you recall, when Daniel walks into the room and he first sees Miyagi with the chopsticks trying to grab the fly or trimming the tree, it is quite clear Miyagi is a man who is very focused centered on what he does and the way Daniel watches him and looks at him um unlike in a way his mother who's very loving the the mother his Daniel's mother loves him and uh and is is you know worried about him at times but she does seem a bit frazzled in the film I find that that her character is a little uh, you know frazzled granted she just moved yeah you kind of across the country love her for it because she has this beautiful energy and she clearly loves her son and she's you know but yeah she doesn't she's almost on the other side of, of Miyagi, who says very little, but simply has this sort of grounded center that sort of pulls people in, which is kind of interesting in that way. Yeah. Um, and so, uh, yeah, no, I agree with you. I, it's, it was one of the, um, it, it was a very touching scene, that scene with the tree and uh, think the tree, think the tree. I, I, I don't know, Elliot, I've always, now you, you, you're, you have more expertise, much more expertise in this than I do. Um, I, I'm curious to hear from you, actually. You, you know, um, I, I'm using the Apple Fitness app right now, and they have these mindfulness cool down sessions you can do after you do like a hit workout or something. And a couple of the instructors will say, close your eyes and breathe in blue light. Feel the blue light and red light. And I get confused. Maybe you can clarify this because I think this is touches on Miyagi's idea of see the tree. Mm-hmm. I get confused when you hear those instructions between thinking blue light and sensing blue light. So I can I can imagine like a Hollywood scene in my head, right. blue light coming into my nose. Right. And then I think he says red light is stress coming out. And I always think, am I doing this right? I was wondering maybe... Uh, I'm putting you on the spot here, but if you can touch on this idea of visualization and and meditation, are you supposed to be seeing it in your brain like a movie? Or are you supposed to be sensing it? Or? So I think it's a couple of things. I think, you know, so first of all, going back to what you were saying about, it, it's very hard to teach someone to be centered if you yourself aren't centered. And I think that in many ways, like if we look Jewishly, Torah is not supposed to be studied alone. 
And it's not just so you can break your teeth over each other's ideas, but you're also like learning the state of learning from the person who knows, who has learned longer than you. And, you know, so in a way it's the modeling, it's the wise elder model isn't just what comes out of their mouths, it's the state that they're in. So when you learn meditation, you, you shouldn't learn meditation alone. You should find someone who really has that state. So when you meditate, what you're learning from them isn't just the things to do, it's the state to be in. And that's why it's so powerful when you have a meditation teacher who understands the state, doesn't just talk about the state, but actually is, is in that place. So when you see Mr. Miyagi being in that sort of centered place that draws people in, right, and, and is kind, right, those are sort of the, you know, the types of markers. And certainly when in, in Judaism, when we talk about tzaddikim, right, like it's not so much about what they say but just watch them. There were many tzaddikim where people said, just go look at them, watch how their hands move, see what they, you know, how they look at you, those types of things. So it's the state that's the most powerful. When it comes to visualizations or, or breathing for that matter, right? They're very nice things to do, but if you don't have the state, they don't make sense. So in many ways, when people are teaching visualization or they're teaching breathing, it's like they're going to step 20 when most people just don't even have step one. <laughs> so those visualizations can be powerful, but you already have to be in the state. So it's like they say, like, you can't, um, you can't play golf to relax. You have to relax to play golf, right? You have to relax to and be in the state in order to then be able to do the meditation. And so meditation is a really... Um, artful practice in that way it's much more of an art yeah i i actually think you're onto something here because when i've been watching these fitness videos there is something about the their their disposition the way they're standing and talking i don't get that they're that centered actually because there's like this funky music playing in the background and and the ipad and and it almost sounds very technique driven work out they're not there to like give you a spiritual experience it's just not what they're doing um Hmm, that's that's interesting. Yeah. You know, Elliot, it reminded me, something you just said reminded me, uh, well, this film actually reminded me of a man who I, I've been looking for him. I can't find him online. My, my, my first and real only guitar teacher, Mark Flurry, who wrote, um, who wrote the uh, rough tracks to Corey Hart's Sunglasses at Night, little known fact about Mark Flurry, um, but, but turned down touring with Corey Hart in the 80s because... Um, you know, that's yeah, he, the first concerts I ever went to, and I wore my Ray-Ban glasses throughout the whole thing. Oh, did you really? <laughs> of course, you have to wear your sunglasses at night. Corey Hart, nice Jewish boy from Westmount, uh, Westmount, Montreal. I didn't know well, he was Jewish. Wow, that's interesting. Okay, okay. We have to fact check that. I'm pretty sure he is. I know he's from Westmount for sure, um, a wealthy area in Montreal. But anyways, um, when I would go for my guitar lesson, I was you know, full of piss and vinegar. I wanted to play, first of all, I wanted to play heavy metal. I wanted to play fast and loud and, and he was cool with that. But whenever I came in, he, he'd be sitting there in his little, with his little legs, his little skinny legs and his shorts with a, with a homemade cigarette dangling, at, uh, dangling out of his mouth. And he'd be practicing his classical guitar very quietly, not for me, for him. It was always practice. So if I got there five minutes early and I used to go there early just to watch him and I didn't like classical guitar at all, but it's, it was his focus and his dedication to practicing in between his lessons. Um, I didn't really know it at the time why I was drawn to that, but I think through osmosis, I would go home and practice. And I think that without him even telling me to practice, there was something about my guide, my teacher, that um, inspired me to practice. Yeah. Uh, and it, there was something about the scene with um, Miyagi and Daniel that reminded me of my, um, my relationship with Mark. So Mark, if you happen to be listening to this, mm. hello. Okay, so that was, um, I, I did not do a standing on uh, okay, one We're kind of getting through it anyways as we talk about this stuff, so. <laughs> but, but we're, we're uh, knee deep uh, into this. Um, what, Ellie, what, uh, what themes for you stood out um, as a parent of, I mean, you know, you have a son who's what, 12, 13? How old is uh, Yona? To be 13 in March. 13, okay, so 13. I have, I have boys. I have to tell you, I worry about, bullying. I was bullied as a kid. So I would be a liar if I said I didn't think about it myself. To date, 
we've had very small instances of, of bullying. Um, I find the day school system that my kids are in, the schools they go to, have been amazing with that. But there is no guarantee when they leave that very sheltered system that they're going to continue having that. So I think about this a lot. My middle child, Sammy, um, has a gruff sort of, uh, he doesn't put up with much. Um, Izzy is much more, my eldest is much more sensitive um, and I think uh, could run into some troubles um, there. And I was watching this film, uh, thinking a lot about things without any clear answers. I just thought maybe we can look at that a bit here. Um, what, you know, the topic of bullying, the topic, and by the way, just to be clear, um, I happen to have boys, but uh, if I had a daughter, I would be worried about bullying. Although my experience as a therapist um, with a focus on adolescence, the bullying that I've experienced that I have dealt with in my practice with girls almost always is emotional and almost always is it's more brutal in some ways. Um, but I, but I, I, I don't know, you know what, I, I wouldn't, I shouldn't say that because I've had guys in my office who've been physically bullied and, and um, it, you know, it can, it can cause tremendous amount of pain for years. I still think about my childhood and it can bring up some, uh, some pain about the physical bullying. Well, so I'm, I'm curious to hear your thoughts about just this whole thing. We talked with this a bit about um, we talked about this a bit with Emmanuel when he was on the show with us um, that you know I think many I'm seeing much more with boys and I hear this from people in schools that they're becoming more that they are bullying more on an emotional level now more like the girls used to because they're no longer allowed to have physical altercations in any form um, and so that frustration aggression. Um, annoyance, um, uh, you know, pain has to come out somehow. And that whole avenue for boys has been fairly shut off. And so now it's coming out in all of these different ways. Um, so definitely, there's definitely bullying. I think that it's rarely addressed with boys until it becomes physical, which is interesting. Um, but I think people are getting better at noticing it. You know, I remember hearing a one teacher I remember speaking to who said, you know, it's always the, it's always the good kids that I watch, you know, like it's the kids who always say the right things in class that I kind of always have a sense that they're the ones that are kicking some other kid under the table. So, so I think teachers have different ways of identifying that, but I think it was interesting watching Daniel because look, he came in there with a bit of an attitude. He comes in with an edge. Like he's got a bit of moxie. He's kind of like a bit like he's got chutzpah. He doesn't back down. And truthfully, like, you know, it's funny what he does at the dance where he like pours water on that guy. But like, what is he thinking? Like he's completely overpowered and outnumbered and sort of sets himself up for a really dangerous situation. So I feel like Daniel really comes in quite immature and just sort of flailing at how to deal with this situation. Like he's not thinking well about what's going on. And I think the, you know, he tries to hide it from his mom. Like, look, you get the sense he comes from New York, so he's kind of tough. But, um, but I know, I, you know, this isn't about victim blaming, but I definitely feel like he's not making good choices. Um, so, so I think that was kind of interesting to watch, like his sort of like weird way. And in fact, I think what I heard is that in Cobra Kai, Daniel is portrayed as the villain. Yeah, he's the cocky. He, he's a sales. Uh, he's a a car salesman, very successful in his life. They they switched. Uh, they switched the roles, which you know I think in in some ways I think that does reflect life in many ways when. Uh, you find success, um, but you forget your humble uh, background and you sort of become, you know, in, in many ways, the person that um, you disdained, you know, you now be sort of become that person. Uh, stars. You see people who are child celebrities and then they become eventually just caricatures of themselves because they don't know how to be, how to grow into something totally different. Um, so, yeah, it's interesting when you see his character that way. Right, right. Uh, you know, one of the things uh, I can tell as a parent um, that I uh, have been paying attention to is, you know, martial arts lessons for my kids. We, we started in our, the area that we were in. We never really found anything that stuck 
um, because my kids would take a bus to school and back. There wasn't a lot of time after school for them uh, to do that. Um, but now that we're in the area that we're in, um, when COVID, when things open up, it's going to be something that we're going to be looking into um, for for our uh, for our kids. Uh, and um, you know, uh, what's interesting about this film also is that. Uh, something to do about temperament too. I mean, yeah. Daniel was no slouch. When he was on the beach, this is before he had, uh, you know, his Miyagi uh, experience and, and uh, training. When he was on the beach, he defended uh, Ali uh, with the radio. Now, granted, he was, you know, he was smitten by her and, and all this kind of a thing, but there was something with a fire yeah. within Daniel, you know, maybe a bit of his old New York uh, something or other coming out. And yeah, um, he's, he's clearly a tough kid. Um, right. It does, doesn't totally recognize, like, you know, when he's outnumbered. <laughs> right, right. And, and I have to say that the filmmaker didn't say anything. Okay, but I do think that Emmanuel touched on this, which is he had a fire within his belly, but he had no one to to help him channel that yeah. uh, that rage. Um, and of course, you know, we, we can you know we can psychoanalyze Daniel to the cows come on. We don't have really have details about this, but um, you know, I remember when my parents moved, and I had no say in it, and we moved, and I it was a mixture of grief and rage, and I was you know because you you have no. You, you really don't have any emotional financial power when you're 15, 16. And his mother said, look, we're going to, we're going to leave all your friends and everything that, you know, we're going to move across the country. Um, and so Daniel probably was this, you know, um, vessel of all these complex uh, emotions and lacked situational aware awareness when he should have backed down. Because of course, in real life, Ellie, this is something that movies don't depict well in real life, one punch to the head and you're knocked unconscious. Now you have concussions. Now you're, uh, you know, in real life, when someone gets, it's funny in movies, right? You see these movies. It's, it's really interesting. These movies where people take, you know, nine, 10 punches to the head yeah. and they go, whew, that was hard. Right. Right. You know? And I remember I would be downtown in Montreal. You go to a bar, a fight breaks out, one punch to the head, the guy's knocked out, out unconscious, one punch. So um, these, these movies sometimes s set up a scenario where uh, if people want to replicate this in real life, you're, you're asking for, uh, for some trouble. Um, anyways, uh, my overall point here is that Daniels seem to have something within him. I can't help but wonder if they're, you know, what his father, what his relationship with his father was like when his father was alive. He was eight, according to the information I read, so old enough to remember his father. Um, I also wonder if Daniel had any other um, male role models, an uncle, a cousin, maybe an old sensei back in uh, New York, who really gave him sort of some sort of um, solidity within himself, uh, principles like defend the defenseless. I mean, that's sort of what he was doing uh, on the beach. Well, and you see that even from the beginning where he comes and he's so sweet to the old lady who's by the pool. And he says, oh, you, you reminds, she reminds me of Uncle Louie. Like, Clearly there's a family structure. There's people he's grown up around. He's kind enough to offer her dog water. Like he, he has a way about him that's, that's actually quite kind, which, you know, which is, which is a mature thing, you know, in that way. So it's kind of interesting. So he clearly must have uncles and aunts and things like that. Yeah. And what was the other scene, Ellie, where he, um, oh, oh, right. Remember the first, uh, uh, he meets that kid in the apartment complex yeah. and, and, and wasn't there a little bit of tension right away. And, but they, it, it got resolved very quickly. Yeah, Cause he kicks the, kicks the gate in and smacks it into the other guy's face. He's like, I got, and then kicks the gate down. And the guy's like, Whoa, what was that? And then they're so nice with each other. It was actually like a really lovely interaction in terms of being just nice kids and inviting him to like a party and talking about where they're from and, it was really nice. It, actually, my kids were watching that and they were kind of like, wow, how did he make friends so fast? And I was like, yep, that's what happened when you just hung out with people in person. <laughs> that's how it went. <laughs> they were right. like so mystified by how he could suddenly be on the beach playing soccer with all these people. <laughs> yeah, that it used to be that people just hung out together. <laughs> you know, um, the obviously for me, uh, one of the themes that we have talked about is that is this concept of wise elder. 
uh, a concept that I um, use from my late supervisor, David Freeman. And in this film, it is very obvious <laughs> to my eyes, I don't know, but to yours, but who the wise elder is in this film. And, and it ain't the sensei instructor from that crazy uh, dojo um, uh, yeah. uh, where, you know, he, he encourages his uh, teenage students to you know, all means necessary to win the match, uh, in other words, incur injury to your opponent so that we could uh, get the gold medal. So I made a couple of notes here, Ellie. I thought I would just throw some out here because there's some unique elements of wise elder-ish type things that Miyagi yeah. presents in this film that I thought would be interesting looking at. And again, when I talk about this, I talk about this within the spirit of thinking of, uh, as parents, um, what what you know the parents will often ask me well what is this i want how am how am i supposed to be a a wise elder um to my kids i think miyagi actually the character of miyagi does a, a pretty good um, job of, of expressing some so the first a couple of things here the first thing is um and i think this is so important i think it's important um for therapists any sort of coaches uh, parents he, he doesn't take himself seriously and he uses humor. Whenever Daniel tries to throw him a jab or you're an old man, he'll be like, ha, 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 old man, yes. You know, it's a bit of a Yoda thing, yeah, totally. you, you know, he doesn't get and he doesn't get all defensive. Now, I know parents that do. I've worked with parents like this where the kid will say something and the parent will try to defend their position and the kid knows I got gotcha. you. I got gotcha. you. Right. You know, right. Um, and by the way, for parents who are listening to this, kids don't want to get you. They want to know there's a pecking order in this life. When the roles reverse, though, and the kids know they have more power than parents, watch out. It's a recipe for disaster um, in a home or a classroom. A little bit. Sorry? Explain that a little bit. In what way is a disaster? How does that work? Well, you know, um, what, what happens is that when the power goes to an adolescent in a, a family, and they know they have that kind of power, but they don't have the financial or emotional resources to do anything with that power. It's kind of like giving someone a machine gun without any knowledge and saying, press the trigger and good luck. Right. And so bullets start flying all over the place and you can hurt yourself. And I think for teenagers that I've worked with, they have all this power. And so they're making very poor decisions, um, it, which has great impacts to their future and to their current lives. They also, um, they also, it's, it's a funny thing. They know that they have this power over their parents and they use it, but simultaneously it disgusts them that they're parents are so weak and they'll say this, they'll, you know, they'll say this. And then they're always seeking out other parental power figures to sort of control them right, in, in a way. What happens with them going to that really militant karate teacher? They're looking for someone who says no, who's, who controls them, who you'll look out for, you'll try to find the negative wise elder who just tells you what to do and, you know, you become radicalized. But, um, you know, I think it's interesting, too, because it seems what you're saying, which I love, which is kids should have power. They should feel agency and power, but they need to be in a in the right dynamic to learn how to use it properly until they're able to fully wield it on their own. And if we're not in that position where we're, we're saying to them, you have power, my job is to teach you how to use it then it's just a runaway train like you said like it, it just doesn't it doesn't work because they need the guidance right right i mean um uh you know we have more information at our fingertips than our parents did and my god our grandparents or great grandparents did um but the accumulation of wisdom um often increases anxiety and can create a paralysis in terms of making decisions. It takes wisdom to know where to move your life and wisdom only comes with time. I know young people, I sometimes speak to young people and they think that, and I'm talking about people um, who go to university, you get a, a master's degree or a PhD and even young therapists. The, the biggest problem with young therapists and my wife who's a doctor will say even young doctors is they don't have the wisdom to know what they don't know. Right. And that's dangerous. Um, and so, uh, I think that, um, I, th I think that it, you know, uh, Miyagi sort of creates a vessel for Daniel to channel all of these complex emotions into sort of a, a focal point, um, in two ways, three, I'd say three ways. Number one, himself, first of all, to 
to, to deal, to center himself. Number two, how to build a relationship with Ali. So I think some of the lessons he learns with Miyagi is how to have a, a, an emotional relationship and be centered within yourself, even though you come from a lower socioeconomic status. And I think that's where Miyagi's sense of humor helps Daniel, which is like, you laugh. You laugh it off. She went, okay, she's a big host. You know, you laugh, it's funny. Your, your, your mother has to push the car because the stall's outside of, uh, you know, Ali's house. Okay, you laugh. It's funny. It's silly. Which, by the way, Daniel's mother does when the car stalls outside of Ali's house. She, she's sort of like, you know, in her anxious sort of nervous way, she's making fun of it and, and you know, has a sense of humor about the whole thing. So, again, the, this idea of, um, you know, Miyagi's sense of humor and uh, the self-deprecating humor, I think, shows a certain amount of confidence and centeredness. Uh, people who don't feel confident and centered as parents, I find, get very defensive. They don't find this type of stuff funny. Um, and everything becomes more of a slog. Now, the question, of course, is the ultimate question is, can you teach that to someone? That's tricky. Yeah. I'm not sure, you know, Miyagi, it's quite clear it's natural to him. I do think though, that if you can lower anxiety in people, not all, I have worked with people where there's such a strong melancholic a part of them that it really is hard to tap into um, uh, sort of a more foundational um, ability to be self-deprecating. So I don't think this is true for everyone, but a lot of people, if you can calm the seas of anxiety, a certain amount of the ridiculousness of life and of self can, right. can emerge. I remember um, seeing something once that said, like, I want to mess my kids up just enough so that they are, they're funny. You know, like- the, I've never heard that before. That's yeah, good. You want it, like, you, I, I love that my kids have a sense of humor, you know, like I totally appreciate it. And, and so, and I think that sense of humor, you, you laugh at things is a certain type of resolve. So I, I think it's so, you know, I, yeah, that's true. It's so interesting to think about Miyagi in that way. I now, mean, like a buddy film with like Mr. Miyagi and Yoda together. Well, they're very similar characters in, in a, a lot of ways. I have to say, by the way, uh, like all things in life, Ellie, there's a flip side to this. I've worked with parents where all they do is make jokes and it's almost the exact opposite of melancholy, meaning that how they manage their anxiety and immaturity is trying to be pals with their kids and everything is a joke and a sarcasm, like the, like the father a little bit in 16 Candles. Right would be an example at the beginning of the film. Nothing's taken seriously. Nothing's taken seriously. Everything's a joke. Um, and there's almost like a narcissistic trying to get a laugh um, at the expense of my kids um, out of this. So, I, I, you know, it's this old, you know, idea that you, we've talked about many times. There's something in the middle is that that sweet spot um, in the middle. Okay, something else here. Something that's beautiful about uh, what Miyagi does, and you don't hear many people do this, especially these days. He talks a lot about his father. So he, Daniel will say, where'd you learn that? My father. Uh, how did you learn? My father. And then at one point in the scene, they're leaving the beach and, and uh, Daniel says to him, it sounds like you had a pretty impressive father, mm. right? It's a beautiful line really beautiful and you're right you don't hear people say that as much you don't well you don't hear people say that about um they, they don't see they 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 are connected to their parents either through a religious obligation of honor thy thy mother and thy father so so they're doing it either through jewish law halacha or they're doing it because it, it's a good thing to do you know call your mom and your dad every now and then make sure they're okay right but um, one of the things that uh, Dr. Bowen used to talk about uh, with respect to young couples who leave their families and say uh, some version of, I want to do it differently than my mom and my, I'm not going to be the kind of father my father was to me. He would always say some version of, can you quiet yourself down a little bit and think of where your father and mother um uh, did something, stood for something that you want to continue in the generation, meaning that they got it from their grandmother, grandfather, and they got it from there. So what is it in your family that was rooted in good? However you define good, was it something creative? Was it, was it a way they planned family trips? Was it, what is something you want to repeat? right? You know, in our tradition, it would be the Shabbat. Oh, you know, my family wasn't observant all this, right? But did they, did they do something that honored Judaism in a certain kind of a way that you could repeat in your family because it was good. It came from a good place. And then Bowen would say, and for the stuff that didn't work, how are you going to rework it? Because if all you think you're going to do is with a huff and a puff, just do it 
differently and different, you're going to get the same result. And so he would really encourage people to, to look at your family, to be objective about the good and the stuff that has to be reworked. And he said, if you can find that balance when, when you're a young couple, um, you could see your new relationship as a, um, an opportunity to continue the stuff that worked to pass it down to the next generation, but to rework something. And that's what he sort of said was across generations, how things can you know, increase towards more maturity. He found that people who leave their families uh, um, emotionally blind. So one version of this would be you leave your family and you just um, unconsciously do whatever your family did because any sense of changing anything would be hearsay or the opposite, which is what I see in my office much more, a young couple sitting there and they look at each other, you know, gazing into each other's eyes going, we are not going to subject our kids to the toxicity that we saw in our family. And I'm thinking to myself, good luck. <laughs> you know, good luck with that. It's going to do the work. It's going to repeat. <laughs> so, um, so I think that that really is a beautiful part of the movie that Miyagi really credits his father to a lot of the, um, the, uh, the things, the skills, and, and sort of his way of thinking. Um, and, it, and I think teaches the, field, the beauty of having a wise elder and crediting your sources and feeling connected to another generation. Like just through doing that, he's modeling something so beautiful for him. Like that you yeah. feel connected to who came before you and, and recognize what you learned from them. And, and I think that's such a grounding principle for kids and for adults also. Um, yeah. Um, you know, something else uh, uh, Miyagi does here, which we haven't talked about um, in previous episodes, is he, he has this line, and I think it's a, it's, it's a good line, uh, and if maybe we, if we have, you'll let me know, but he, he um, I forget what Daniel says, but Miyagi's line is, wacko teacher, attitude rest in fist, stupid, but fact of life. There is something very, um, very, very powerful about wise elders deal with the facts of life and they don't get caught up in fantasy or denial. This idea that, yes, the sensei and the other sensei, you know, is doing this thing. You want to fight it. You want to cry. You want, you want to lobby the government to, to change the, the dojo. Have at it. If that, but you know what? Sometimes it's important to just deal with the facts of life the facts of life of your birth, the facts of life of who your parents are, the facts of life of whatever body God gave you. This is the body that I have versus the body that I don't have, the facts of life of your job. I mean, there, it's, it's not about throwing up your hands and saying, oh, well, this is all I've got and I got to deal with this. It's about dealing with the facts of life. This is a fact. And why this is so, so bloody important with teenagers in particular, there are a lot of parents I work with who don't deal with the facts of life. And they deal with a lot of projection and fantasy of what they wish would be. What that would look like or sound like? Oh my God, there's so many. Um, I'll give you just one example, but Ellie, I can, there's, I mean, this is such a common theme in my practice. Right. Look, you know, you're a parent, I'm a parent. We have our hopes and our dreams and our fears about all the ways our kids are going to turn out. That is a fact of life. That actually is a fact of life. Yep. And so there's two ways to deal with the fact of life about projection as a parent and the dreams we have. One is to deny it and see it all in your kid and, and not see and not see how you're sort of projecting this onto your kid. So meaning, so I'll just give you an example. I was working with a, a family many, many years ago in a different province, not, not in Ontario, where, uh, and I might've shared the story with you before, uh, where they were both highly educated people who went to Ivy League schools in the United States and their kids were all very smart. I was working in a high school and their kid was depressed, like, like with some suicidal ideation. And it turned out that one of the things that was going on at home was this kid wanted to be a pilot. The parents could not hear it. They just, I remember they were in my office. I saw the kid there and they, they, they said, it could be a hobby for you. You can get your license. You can do whatever you want, but you cannot, you, you're going to go do whatever they wanted. They, they had this thing. Did they love their kid? They loved their kid to bits. It was their eldest kid. They loved this kid. It had nothing to do with love. Right. Did they want the best for their kid? Somewhere, yes, they wanted the best for their kid. But you could just see the kids like sort of slinking in his chair. His shoulders would just droop. And he just realized this is, I, I can't, I can't do anything um, with this. I, I didn't work with this family that long, but I never got to the source of where that projection was coming from. What was the, what was the, the fire in the belly in these folks that needed their kid to be a certain thing? It's a fear. There's something about a fear or something that was unfinished in the family that, 
you know, it, it, because it's interesting, the kid wasn't saying, you know, my, my, my dream job, you know, is to deal drugs on the street. I mean, he, he wanted to be a pilot. So I don't know if it was that they were worried that this kid would crash and they would, they would lose their child, the child that they worked so hard to get through IVF or something. I don't know. But whatever you hear that kind of projection, it usually means there's something unfinished. There's a story behind the story, I guess, is where, where I'm going with this. And when, we, when you have a teenager, I think the role of parents is to come back to that line that you, can't, you, you said before. Um, what was that line? Oh, if it comes from inside you, it's always the right one. I, I really do believe this. And Ellie, my kids are too young. I really do hope I, I embody this uh, spirit when my kids are older. You know, this idea of being able to give space for your child to find out what is true for within them and deal with the facts of life, whatever that might be, even when it's choices that are counter to your own. In other words, I think it's absolutely legitimate. Look, Ellie, I've worked with families where uh, a young person comes home and they say they're more religious than their family. And I've worked with situations where young people come home and they say, I'm, I'm leaving the religion of our, our family. Right. I have seen some families deal with this, the facts of life in a mature fashion. And I have seen families um, deal with this in a not very uh, mature fashion. The facts of life is when a kid comes home and they're 17 and 18 and they find it within themselves to share with their parents, this is my thinking and feeling on politics, God, a career, where I want to live. That's a fact of life, meaning your kid is expressing something. Yeah. How you create the space to have a conversation with your child as a wise elder, curiosity, questions, right? I think sort of helps your child navigate the world. It doesn't mean you have to sit there and go, I, that's just great. I'm so happy when you're not. I think there's a way as a wise elder to say, and, and Miyagi does this, by the way. Daniel says certain things and you could see Miyagi going, you know, like Daniel's whole idea of like, he wants to fight and he wants to win. And you could see Miyagi say, well, it's not my way. Right. Right. I mean, it's he, I think uh, Daniel said to him, well, didn't you compete or something? And he goes, no, I only use karate to defend my defend myself. Like I didn't go to these competitions to win gold medals. That's not what I did. But Miyagi never tells Daniel that should be your your goal, too. And I think it's very, very important um, when we have teenagers to uh, be able to express our thoughts and our feelings, but keep the focus on me, not on you. Mm. And I can still love you. And we can still go for coffee. And, and this is, by the way, so much uh, easier said um, than done. But really, do we? what's the choice? One choice is to sit there and say, um, uh, you either do it my way or the highway. And now you don't have a relationship with your 22-year-old. And I have many cases like that in my office. It's a choice. That's one choice. Or you get the relationship with your 22-year-old by dealing with the facts of life. Right. Yeah. And also, it seems like, again, if we go back to role modeling, if a parent deals with the facts of life and navigates that from a grounded reality and not anxious, anxiously focused on it, you model for your kids what that looks like. Then they get to see how to be, be realistic and have their feet on the ground and deal with the facts of life in a non-anxious way. But if they don't see it, they'll never learn how to do it either. So then it's like you say, it just sort of rolls down the generations that nobody's really focusing on what's real and just like projecting all over each other. So I think that's a really interesting thing to notice that if we can do it as parents, then our kids will be able to do that as adults. Right. Now we're, we're I, I'm looking at the time. I think that we are over. Uh, but what I'm going to do is uh, I have a, a few more uh, notes here. I'm going to find a way to incorporate this. I think my next newsletter is going to be the Karate Kid, just because we've talked about this and Cobra Kai is so popular. So what I'll do in my next newsletter is I'll just share a bit more of um, uh, these ideas of um, Miyagi as a wise elder in the unstuck portion. Yeah. So uh, if you sign up for that, you'll get it there. Amazing. And um, we haven't picked a the next movie yet. Do you have any ideas, Ellie? Well, we did have that list. We have the poll. So, um, you know, we could just go down from, I think, what was number two on that list? Well, I, I'd like to, I, I'd like to tell you the one that I'd like to do. Okay, what do you want? I'm going to do this publicly, but you can feel free to send me a message on Facebook and, yeah. and tell me if you disagree. Yeah. Someone said, um, a wise woman said mermaids, um, yeah. and I've never seen mermaids. And I, I, um, I like Cher as an actress. I mean, I, I always thought that she 
it was quirky and had a sort of style to her. So I don't know if that works for you. Yeah, yeah, totally. I think I, my mom mentioned it and there's- uh, Well, well that's the wise elder I'm talking about, Ellie. <laughs> She's a very wise elder, thankfully. Um, yeah, so, okay, mermaids. I love that idea. I don't Is, think I've ever seen the whole thing either, so- I, I've never even seen it at all. Okay, cool. Let's but I think someone mentioned tearjerker. All right, fine. So get more Kleenex. <laughs> Fair enough. So are, are we going to do mermaids? Yeah, let's do mermaids. I like it. Great. Okay. Mermaids is the next film. Amazing. Okay. Thanks everybody for joining us. Please remember, um, this is also a podcast, so you can find it on Apple and Spotify and Overcast and Google and anywhere that you listen to your podcasts. If you've enjoyed it, please share it with friends, subscribe, leave us a review, send us a message with ideas for movies. And, um, and we really want to hear from you. So thank you so much, everyone. And have a great day. Thanks, Avram. Bye-bye.